Welcome to Open Swim with your hosts, Hallie Bram Kogelschatz, Eric Kogelschatz, Brian Andrew Jasinski, and Allie Healy. Hey guys, so we've got a really exciting episode today, at least I think it's exciting. We're going to talk all about money, 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 money. <laughs> All right. So we are talking finances because around the office, it's kind of hard to miss the fact that every publication coming out at the moment, or if you flip on the news, seems to be talking about the fact that 2020 could be a little bit of a rocky year when it comes to the economy. And that might mean that we need to brace ourselves a little bit now and save a little more, spend a little less. So we thought that it would be good to talk to some industry experts as well as do our own homework to just talk a little bit about what we can all be doing to put ourselves in a better position should something like that happen next year. So here's the thing, right? So it's been about 10 years since the last recession. Any of us that are old enough to remember what that was like are really frightened, frankly, of what could happen should that kind of economic slump happen again. But the trend line suggests that it's coming. And I think what's really surprising to a lot of people is that right now we can't really feel it coming. Unemployment's at 3.6%. People feel like they're doing pretty well. You know, companies are hiring, more prosperous. There's been a lot of positive economic growth over the last few years. And so it's a little bit of a hard thing to reconcile in the minds of a lot of people because they can't see it. They're not feeling it. And in fact, in some ways, they may be better off than they've been probably in the last 10 years. So Allie, I know you were doing a little bit of research on this. What types of predictors or indicators are you seeing that may suggest that this is a real concern that people should have? Well, interestingly, talking about unemployment rate being so low, it is at a 49-year low, according to CNN Business, which is kind of awesome and Mm -hmm. crazy to talk about in a sense of like now businesses are worried about being able to keep up with hiring skilled quote-unquote employees that are right and qualified for their jobs every article you read the headlines nearly half of ceos are predicting a recession in the upcoming year and one thing they're really worried about is being able to hire employees that are qualified and educated in the right ways and being able to retain the ones that they have So that's actually a really interesting indicator because typically you think of supply and demand, right? You know, if there isn't demand, then you don't need more supply, which means you don't have to make as much of whatever it is that you're making. But what this is, is actually reverse engineering that and saying, if we can't hire the right kind of workforce, then we're not able to make enough to actually drive the economy and to actually produce what needs to be produced. And so that actually could drive from the bottom up. It's no surprise on this podcast, we've talked in the past about some of our B2B clients in areas like manufacturing, plumbing, what have you. And a lot of them are saying that the boomer generation is retiring, their skilled laborers are retiring, and they're having a really hard time recruiting the next generation of talent to backfill those positions. And so I think this like really follows with what we've heard clients be concerned over in the last few years. How do I get that right person to fill that job? And if I can't, what exactly does that mean on the go forward? Right. And another thing, and I don't know how true this is or or what the correlation is but something that I thought of when reading about this was the student debt crisis and Mm. and how college tuition prices are increasing every year and how does that feed into people like maybe not going to college or maybe not going to trade schools because they can't afford it 
Have you seen all these like articles and news segments recently about, I have never seen it like this before, where there are a lot of people coming out and actually saying, you know what, I'm not telling my kids even that they have to go to college. Like that was so aspirational for Mm -hmm. so long. And now there are a lot of successful parents out there saying, I'm not going to be pushing for this if they don't seem to have a career path that requires them to go into advanced education, such as, you know, doctors, lawyers, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. I think there are several reasons for that. But one of them is corporate America, the influence that they have on people, especially Google and Apple, they've announced that they aren't requiring college degrees anymore. So Mm -hmm. they're opening up to a much wider audience. So there's no incentive now for people to go to school if the top companies that everyone wants to work at is not requiring it. I think the thing is, a lot of companies really want to have that quote unquote entrepreneurial culture. And I think they think that means scrappy and young and fresh and that it needs to come from that kind of place. And maybe too much of a traditional mindset as a deterrent from that kind of culture. And so it does make sense that they would be more open to non-traditional workers in the sort of traditional context, so to speak. And so none of this is very surprising, but it does fly in the face of what Allie was saying before as far as with these jobs that actually require specific training, how do you bridge that gap? You know, Mm -hmm. how do you make sure that people understand that there is a path to a good, not just job, but a career for you without four-year education, but you still do need to have some sort of vocational training in order to be able to achieve these jobs? The other thing that people talk about when you're talking about the recession upcoming in, in 2020 is obviously policies and trade policies and and that's affecting a lot of big businesses and so people are kind of a little bit tight-lipped about it but they cite protectionist policies as part of the reason they're predicting this. There's a lot of topics right now that are coming up like trade but and also infrastructure and this has become the focus for a lot of policymakers. Instead, they should be thinking about how do we sustain the economy and ensure that we don't move into this looming recession that everyone keeps talking about. So there's been a lot of talk about public policymakers encouraging central banks to reform their approach. And there have been three things that I've heard about that the central banks need to really focus on. One is what's called quantitative easing, so just taking back some of those costs forward guidance, so giving true recommendations like reducing bond yields. And then last one is negative interest rates. So that's what they are encouraging, but the policymakers aren't able to do that because they're thinking about trade right now, Mm -hmm. infrastructure. There are so many different topics that the government's focusing on right now. So we need to encourage them to be thoughtful about planning for the recession now. But really, I think it's too late for the upcoming one because it's going to be here before we know it. They need to plan now for the one that's going to be in, you know, 10 years from now yeah well and the truth is is so much of the imports are in such a state of question right now because of the tariffs because of the fines that are being placed upon anything coming into the country or out of the country and with the fact that we're going into an election year and there is so much uncertainty around what those policies are going to be so many products are being put on hold. You know, we have had first person conversations about this very issue as a client had issues building their upcoming business because of the tariffs that were on steel. They couldn't even build their business, literally build their business. Um, So, you know, it's a real thing. I feel like when we see it on the news, it seems like that doesn't affect us. That's something for products or for merchandisers or retailers to worry about. But the truth is, and we always hear about, yes, things are going to be more expensive on our shelves. But at the end of the day, it does come down to business businesses being able to literally build, literally operate, and it therefore has that effect on the people that they work with, the people that they work for. And so it is, you know, to Eric's point, it's an issue that is 
affecting us now. And I do believe that the 2020 presidential race, that one is really not going to be affected by or cannot create solutions to the issue now. It's, it really is, to Eric's point, the 2024 election. And what's wild is as you get closer to the election, you're going to hear a lot of talk and very little action. So again, like Brian's saying. Yeah, like a new administration could come in and it's a square one situation. So like you say, Eric, it, it may be too late. So I think the focus needs to be on what can individuals do to better protect themselves from vulnerability. But unfortunately, it's a situation that really did affect everyone. Eric, I know you've been thinking a little bit about what possible solutions might exist and doing a little bit of research there. What kinds of things are you unearthing? So historically, what we've seen during recessions is that policymakers focus on a few different areas. One is extending welfare programs to make sure it covers more people and provides more benefits. The other is for corporate America, thinking about unemployment benefits and how to increase those. And then also the idea of cutting taxes. But all these examples are temporary solutions in that it puts more money into people's pockets. But then what do they do with those dollars? Do they hold them or do they spend them in the economy, which is really what you need to do in a recession is to stimulate the economy, keep things moving forward. The only solution that I've heard so far beyond being proactive and thinking about what we can do for future recessions is what the Brookings Institute has said, which is thinking about the creation of these automatic stabilizers that track the economy and as certain triggers occur, it dynamically changes policy or the tactics to support the economy. We talk about the idea of automation in every discipline, whether it be business or marketing, but we're not applying it to the world of economics. So what does that look like? And I do think that's a solid recommendation from Brookings. So it it will be something that will really help us in the future, maybe not for this recession, but maybe the next. So if I'm understanding you correctly, what you're saying is that, you know, there may be a specific demographic of people that choose to behave a certain way in a recession. So let's say what we know about a certain group of people is that they're more inclined to save during a recession because they want to make sure that they are not as vulnerable to some of the changes happening in the economy. We have to find a way to increase their disposable income and encourage them to save, but also to spend in the right way so that both they as an individual kept safe as well as the economy being stimulated. I think the other thing to consider is who gets hit the hardest during an economic downturn. So, you know, we talk a lot, I feel like on this podcast about voting with your dollars. And if you like something, you know, make sure that you... you you know, spend your money there because it may not be here tomorrow if you don't spend your money here today. So, you know, who's going to get the hardest hit during an economic downturn? It's not the necessarily the targets of the world. It's your local coffee shop. It's your local retailer. I think it's a really good reminder that when times are tough, really be thoughtful about where you're putting your money because there's less of that disposable income to go around. And if you want to see that business sustain, you know, you're a part of that equation. Absolutely. Because what can we do in a recession? We want to increase confidence in spending. Mm -hmm. Something else to think about with this is the economic impact of spending your dollars in local communities and and voting with your dollars. If you spend money at a a local coffee shop or a, a local restaurant or something, that money that you're spending goes back into your community and it has a bigger impact in your local economy. I do think of all these points that we're talking about are very counterintuitive to, as you know, Eric, you were saying earlier, you want to save your money, you don't want to spend it, or you are going to be tempted to go to these bigger boxes because it's cheaper, it's more convenient. They have that ability to react to what's happening in the economy and sell things for a lower price point. But again, you're, you could be sacrificing quality, but most importantly, you are sacrificing 
that local impact and that local growth and, and stimulation of the economy that is affected by how you are choosing to spend those dollars that, again, we're counterintuitively being told to spend during those times. You know, it makes me think back to our retail episode a little bit, because one of the things that we had talked about was the idea that there are changing tastes. This idea that who's going to win in the end are the, on one side of the spectrum, luxury retailers, and who's going to win on the other side of the spectrum are these discount retailers like the targets of the world. And I do wonder if the next economic downturn is going to force this issue even more, if we're going to see more of those middle of the road retailers really disappear, because people, when they have less disposable income, they're going to be spending it at the places that either they really want to spend it at, they're going to be more thoughtful, and that could mean local or otherwise. Or, Brian, to your point, they're really going to be looking for discounts. These kind of middle of the road retailers, like, you know, I hate to say it, Gap, but they're coming for you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that unless you can find a way to differentiate yourself in the marketplace and, and really pilot something new, it could be a really rocky road for you in the next few years believe we touched on this when we talked about retail these bigger box stores these larger retailers they are very aware of this what i would like to say is a positive trend of shopping local shopping small and they're almost using a smoke and mirrors like having their products begin to look like something that you would buy that was locally handmade or mm-hmm. to the other extreme of actually partnering with local businesses and having them on their shelves. So suddenly, you know, a target is like, look, we're selling these pickles that were made by a local you know, restaurant in your community. So there is almost this confusion that they're creating to almost create this false confidence for, you know, when you are shopping them, you're like, oh, I am supporting a small business. But no, at the end of the day, you're still shopping at a large big box store. Mm-hmm. So, and I do think that that is them reacting to Hallie, what you said, almost trying to cross themselves over to that smaller business, quote unquote, you know, to, I, I hate to say it, but falsely uh, acquire your, 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 your small business support. Yeah. It's really yeah. interesting that you say that because I was at Whole Foods recently and I was going down an aisle and I noticed that one of the things that they had implemented was this signage that actually has a photo on it of the people that made that product. And so it wasn't actually local, but it was trying to show like, hey, if you buy this the humanity, it, yeah, the humanity behind it, mm-hmm. if you buy this, you know, particular, I think it was in like the, the soap aisle or something, you know, you buy this soap, you're supporting Mary and Joe Smith that made the soap out in Oklahoma or whatever it is. Definitely. So, you know, trying to make you feel like even though you're buying something at a large retailer that you're supporting someone small. So again, right. I do agree with you that it's, it's definitely something we're going to see more of because everybody is going to be competing for those dollars hard as the next economic downturn comes to pass yeah certainly certainly yeah it's a double-edged sword because it's it's good that they are supporting these smaller businesses but i do truly believe though at the end of the day it is about wooing that customer over to support them as a as a bigger business rather than the smaller businesses i'd be curious to hear from if you're listening and you are a small business if you're a retailer that's actually using target or whole foods or a store like that as a distribution point i'd be curious to hear your thoughts so definitely comment on this episode and let us know your thoughts about if it's a positive thing if shoppers are still I mean obviously it's a positive thing if they're shopping you even in these other places but if there really is that much of a difference from your perspective um, as to whether if, you know if they shop you there or they shop you direct so you know I'd love to hear your thoughts um, definitely comment and let us know what you think
So we're really excited today to have a guest on air with us. And our guest today is Michal Marcus, and she is the executive director of HFLA of Northeast Ohio. So welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for being with us. And for those at home who are listening and don't know anything about HFLA, can you give a little bit of background on what HFLA of Northeast Ohio is? I'd be happy to. So HFLA of Northeast Ohio, it stands for the Hebrew Free Loan Association. And we are a 115-year-old nonprofit that started in 1904. Basically, five Jewish businessmen saw immigrants arriving in Cleveland and not able to support themselves. And they gathered $501. And this is based on Jewish principle that one should not charge interest when helping someone in need, and that the highest form of charity is really empowering someone to help themselves. And they created the interest-free loan fund where people could come, borrow the money, repay it, and then it could be recycled and help the next person in need. We have been non-sectarian the entire time, so we help anyone in Northeast Ohio who lacks access to traditional lending sources yet has the ability to repay. That's amazing. I always tell people that HFLA of Northeast Ohio is like the best kept secret. There are so many businesses in our region that you may not know actually did at some point in time receive a loan or individuals that received a loan for something such as helping to complete their education. Or maybe, you know, they fell on a particularly hard time and needed help paying a mortgage or getting through a government shutdown or something like that. And HFLA always seems to be there to help people when they are truly, truly in need. Can you talk to us about your position within the organization? So how long have you been with HFLA? So I've been with HFLA for 13 years. I started as an office manager 13 years ago. I'm now the executive director. It's amazing. And as you mentioned, we had been the best kept secret. So at that point, we probably had 500000 in our loan fund and half of it was often sitting in the bank. But since then, we have transitioned from me being alone in the office to now having four full-time employees and two consultants. And we've grown the loan fund to over a million dollars. We have over wow. 900000 lent out in Northeast Ohio currently. You know, there are a lot of organizations that talk about mission and vision and values, but the impact that you're able to have on our community is very real. It's very tangible. But speaking of that, you know, what is your mission? What drives the organization? What kind of informs the way that you handle your philanthropy? We are here to lend interest free to people who don't have access to traditional lending sources. We are basically empowering people to help themselves. Uh, Someone whose car broke down and lives paycheck to paycheck and has that extra expense can't repair their car and potentially will lose their job. So we're here to help them repair that car and then make monthly payments to us so that they they have then helped themselves. They have not asked for a handout. They, they, They have enabled themselves to solve the problem. And do you have a sense of approximately how many people you are able to affect on an annual basis? So we are in a new normal because we do keep growing. We currently have about 240 loans out in Northeast Ohio. Last year, during the year, 90 of those were issued. I mean, it's constantly being repaid and recycled. This year to date, we have increased the dollar amount and loan numbers by 26% compared Mm. to last year. Mm. So it's hard to say where we'll be at the end of the year, but hopefully we are going to do more than 100 loans this year. 
So I think there might be a lot of people listening that think interest-free loans. How does that even work? How are you able to dispense interest-free loans? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And look, it is challenging because we make no money on our loans. There are no fees. There's no interest. Uh, We lose money because we're also reporting credit for our borrowers. But this is our mission and we're passionate about it. And we are just blessed to have a community that understands that and supports that. We exist solely through donations and grants. And luckily, there are a lot of people that just really understand the more we build up our community, our neighbors around us with this kind of support, the better we'll all be. And the more our economy will thrive, the less social services that will be needed. It is not a handout. It's a hand up. It's supporting people to help themselves. What I'm interested to get into is in the past when we've spoken, you've told me that For example, before the last recession, there was an uptick in the request for a certain type of loan. And I'm wondering if there are trend lines that you're, you know, kind of seeing now that might predict, you know, we hear a lot of conversation about are we headed for an economic downturn? You know, what could we potentially expect in 2020? I'm wondering if you could talk to us maybe about, you know, the last recession, some things that you were seeing there, and then maybe some things you're seeing now that may lead into things that we might either prepare for for 2020 or at least be aware that are going on. So during the last recession and leading up to it, I mean, we had a lot of people coming to us because they were facing foreclosure or about to be evicted. um, And this was before that hit the news? Pretty much before it hit the news. People were used to earning income at a certain level, and often when they then maybe had a job that paid them less, if they were still employed, they hadn't readjusted their budget, Mm. and they had to learn to readjust their budget to be able to live within their new means. So we help with a lot of people save their homes or, or not be evicted from their leases. Over the years, the past several years, uh, we helped a lot of people get out of payday lending situations. Again, these these are often very independent people, might work two or three jobs, something happens, funeral expense, the car breaking down again, and, and they want a quick fix. And they go into one of these payday lenders. And at the time, I mean, we now have new legislation, which we can uh, talk about after, but at the time, we were seeing interest rates that could go as high as 500%. I mean, we, we saw in the 700% APRs mm-hmm. as well. And and once you get into that, it's really hard to get out of it. So you mentioned the new legislation. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that is and how it might affect things? Yeah. So in 2008, actually, it was brought to the voters in Ohio and the Ohioans voted to get rid of payday lenders. And at that time, they managed to find a loophole in that law. And they managed to continue lending at these predatory Mm -hmm. rates uh, through mortgage title companies. And and they weren't even necessarily based in Ohio. The underwriters were were outside of Ohio. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's how they created this. And then the past two years, with the help of Pew Charitable Trust, a bipartisan coalition started to really bring about new legislation. So the new legislation now caps uh, the interest rates at 28%. Monthly fees must be 10% or less of the original loan amount or a maximum of $30. Hmm. Now, I know this still sounds high to you and I, but this is so much better. Right, yeah. <laughs> and and people are given a longer period of time also to pay pay off these payday loans. So it's not, you don't have to repay this whole loan within two weeks. I think you're given three months to pay it off. That's fabulous. So 
it is a better product. Mm-hmm. And and now that this legislation exists, it will bring new products to our market. So mm-hmm. it won't just be some of these payday lenders. Well, I imagine that's a big part of what HFLA does as far as looking at how else the system, what's available through financial institutions, how else can these challenges be overcome by individuals or businesses or things like that? You know, I imagine you work with a lot of partners to make that happen. It's very important that we take a holistic approach. And, and because the individuals that we're seeing often, or they can't get traditional lending sources, there, there's usually more to the puzzle and they, they need more help. So it might be, we'll have an individual that does need financial coaching and we will partner with one of many agencies in town in order to ensure that they're getting that individual financial coaching and learning to live within their budget and, and hopefully get to a point of saving. If it's, you know, someone who's has a shortfall for education and it might be the first in their family who's going to college, we're going to ask them to go to another partner, which was often college now of Greater Cleveland, in order for them to get some additional guidance and also see what other scholarships are out there. It's challenging, and when no one else has been through it in your family, just to deal with the FAFSA and all the paperwork, it's it's a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, based on your knowledge of working with partners and your knowledge that it's important to take this holistic approach, have you seen an increase in financial literacy in these steps that you're taking with people that you work with after the last recession until now? So the people that have gone through financial coaching that we've spoken to, uh, it has been helpful. There's still a vast lack of knowledge, Mm -hmm. um, particularly, you know, in neighborhoods of low to moderate income neighborhoods where they're struggling. So for them to say, you know, to say, well, you need to budget. Well, it's hard to budget when you don't have anything to budget with. Mm -hmm. So there's other areas that we need to work on equity to help people. We have implemented something new in the past year. It's always been really important to us that we do one thing, we do it really well, relationship lending. But the one thing we did realize we could add to our program was credit reporting for our borrowers. And so about a year ago, we started through a nonprofit in Washington, Credit Builders Alliance, to report credit for our borrowers. Our existing borrowers had to opt in if they want to. Now moving forward, everybody's going to have their credit reported. We have, over the years, seen a 20 to 60-point increase in credit scores for our borrowers that are paying on time. So this is significant, and this will hopefully open up a whole new world for them of of having access to other places to to get help. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that's just one example of what you said before, which is how you look at the issue holistically for each of your borrowers. You sort of say, how can we be a part of the equation, but what other pieces, parts need to be in place so that overall you're more solvent, you're more educated, this doesn't happen to you again. And I think that's such a, you know, as I've gotten to know the organization, I think that's such a strong part of what you stand for is being that voice, helping to stand up. If there's not a solution in place right now, standing up so that policy can be affected, so that the system can be affected. And I know that you've been a strong voice against predatory lending. And I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about, you know, why it's important to be outspoken on this issue, but others, you know, how that fits into HFLA's mission and how that advocacy piece plays a role. In the past, we hadn't necessarily delved into advocacy, but it became very clear to us when we were seeing so many people getting taken advantage of with the predatory loans that we help be that voice to share their stories. Because my borrower who works two jobs and doesn't have time to go down to Columbus to talk to the state senators or or the House, they need someone that's willing to do that. And, And they can't afford to take a day off of work to do that either. Then on top of it, you know, these are hardworking people who are embarrassed that they had to 
mm-hmm. get into that they got into these situations and and right. so somebody, it's a very yeah. hard thing to admit yeah. i mean and a lot of times you know i think there's a perception around people that go into extreme debt and you know there is a real misunderstanding about what leads to that in many cases and how once you kind of go down that that rabbit hole it's very hard to dig out and all the other things that might come into play and so this idea that it's time and it's also there is that not a prideful you know version of pride but you know it, it hurts your pride to have to admit like wow I'm in this situation and I do need help to kind of find a way out of it and and it's not just low to moderate income individuals I mm-hmm. mean it happens to middle class families as well you know you have a health issue and those medical bills can add up and then you're not always sure what do I pay first and how do right. I get out of this you know and we will have sometimes borrowers come to us and we will see their situation and we'll actually think they're bankable and we might ask you know you need to first go turn to your bank and see if they're able to help you and then if they come back to us at the bank denied them which which happens often then we will be able to help them Uh, we had one family that made it quite a nice income but they lived in the Buckeye neighborhood and the value of their home was so low and they needed a brand new roof and they couldn't get that bank loan, even though their mm-hmm. income was pretty decent and they paid their bills. So. Absolutely. You know, so many different situations that may lead people to yeah. your doorstep. Okay, so we talked a little bit before about how prior to the last recession, you were seeing an increase in a certain type of borrower asking for a certain type of loan. And I'm wondering if there are things that you're seeing now that you can draw a trend line to that may indicate what might happen in the future. Our small business loans have increased significantly over the past couple of years. I don't know if that's people feel that they want more to be independent and have their own businesses. I definitely, or, I mean, we see that as a trend. I mean, mm-hmm. there are statistics that support the idea that particularly a younger generation, but it, it's not relegated to the millennials. They like the idea of being their own boss, of being in control, of creating something new. And so there is this boom in entrepreneurship. We have clients that are focusing their business on serving the small business population because that has become such a large part of the economy, particularly here in Northeast Ohio, but across the country. That certainly is a trend that we see emerging. And the fact that you're seeing that increase in your borrowers supports what we're seeing at a national level. Is there anything else that you're seeing? You know, we still deal often with foreclosures. We deal with tax liens, particularly senior citizens who might have fallen behind because they also have reached a point in their life where maybe they need a little more help and they're embarrassed or uncomfortable to tell their family and then they fall behind on certain things. And, and, and you know, it's it's gotten to such a bad point by the time yeah. they get to us that then finally the families get brought in. But, right, right. No, and it's interesting because I was just listening to someone on a podcast that I listened to talk about with the baby boomers retiring, how there is this concern over an awareness, a financial literacy awareness that they had thought existed within that generation that now they're finding out may not exist in the way they thought, but is also being compounded by age. And so I am wondering if, unfortunately, if we're not in store for more of that to come, particularly with things like internet scams, phone scams, and things like that that and a lot of people unfortunately falling on hard times because of those types of issues as well. 
But, you know, that's hopefully a, a piece of good news as far as not seeing something that may indicate a new recession. But of course, you never know what's coming in the future. Uh, yeah, we, we may be overdue now. Yes. It's been a yeah. But it's good to know that if nothing else, HFLA is there that when people really do find themselves in a situation where they do need a little bit of help and strategy finding their way out of that situation, you're there to support people that are truly in need. I'm curious, just on a personal note, if you have a favorite story about your time at HFLA? Oh, there there are so many. <laughs> there, there was one loan that was a hard loan to make. There was a woman that she needed $400 to bury her son. I, I get chills every time I tell it. And um, she really didn't have any income. And we really, but nobody felt they could say no to this. So we, we made this loan. And she started paying every month $10 a month. And then one month she brought me 20 And I said, oh, did you get find a job? And she's like, no, I sold my plasma. And I said, you know what? Go back to the 10 a month. It, it's fine. And then, and she paid about half of it off. There was like a $200 balance and she kind of disappeared and we couldn't get in touch with her. And we thought, okay, you know, we've seen the end. She, she did more than we probably thought she was going to be able to do. And then she came in like six months later and she paid off she finally gotten on disability and she paid off the loan and she made like a $200 donation because she said we were there for her and she wanted to make sure that the fund was sustained and that we could help the next person in mm. her situation so that one always yeah <laughs> chokes me up but in general also I, I love our small business loans I love encouraging people to support local and go to the different small businesses and I just uh, went to one of your borrowers for lunch I just got back from Larder <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and there are so many businesses like that in Northeast Ohio that frankly wouldn't exist if not for HFLA. So, you know, I'm grateful as a patron of those businesses to have you guys here and just in general for what you do for our region. So it's so nice to hear that so many people understand your mission and they make this a part of their philanthropic giving. What if somebody is out there listening and wants to be involved with HFLA of Northeast Ohio? How are some of the ways that they can get involved right away? So there are lots of ways to get involved. I mean, Clearly, becoming a donor is a great way. And, and we have a monthly Sprouts Club of people that actually just are monthly doing small amounts, which then add up. It could be, you know, a young person who is foregoing uh, two cups of coffee a week and, and donating $10 a month. And then, you know, in the end, that's a $120 donation for the year. And that that's really helpful. It could be volunteering. There, There's lots of different options. We have different events during the year. We will be having our party 115 November 9th. We are celebrating 115 years of interest-free lending. We'll be honoring uh, Jeremy Umansky, who is the chef and one of the owners of Larder in town. And he actually got an interest-free loan from us to go to Culinary Institute of America. He used it to buy his professional knives and his books, which he still uses today. And so that's another avenue. But we're happy to talk to people one-on-one. -on -one. We're happy to share our mission. And if you are interested in getting involved, talk about different ways you could. And just on a final note, I'm wondering, you know, if you have thoughts, given everything that you've seen with your borrowers, with the economic situation, if you have advice, you know, so what can we do now to better prepare ourselves financially should disaster strike? You know, it, it's sometimes really hard if you don't make enough money to save. But whatever you can save, you should be trying to. There was an article in 
the Atlanta a few years ago that said 50% of middle American families don't have more than $400 saved for an emergency. Hmm. And anything you can squirrel away, and, and maybe you don't need that brand new high-end something, or, you know, just living a little more conservatively. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're concerned that this is going to happen and, and you don't have the income. And and to be willing and to accept if your income level changes that you are going to have to relook at your budget, adapt. Absolutely. So HFLA has gone through a lot of iterations in its 115 years. And I'm wondering, in its current iteration, you know, what gets you excited to get into the office every day? You know, and what are you looking forward to in the next chapter of HFLA? So in the next chapter of HFLA, I'm really excited for our growth. The fact that we are breaking that mold of being the best kept secret in town and that people can really see the difference an interest-free loan makes for a person because it's not necessarily a $50,000 loan that someone needs. We only go up to $10,000, but sometimes that's enough for someone to start their small business or to buy a car so that they can get to their jobs out in the suburbs, which pay better than the ones in the city. You know, it's for someone able to pursue their education. They're able to get their degree or get a vocation. I mean, just making a difference. I think the other thing that's really compelling to me about HFLA is that with our clients that we work with that have a philanthropic piece of what they do, you know, if they're working with donors, one thing that comes up time and time again is that donors are looking for ways to make actionable change and to really see their dollars at work. And your organization is one where that's really true, you know, because of what you do with lending up to that $10,000 mark. You're really, you you understand that you're helping real people, real individuals. You can see that change in your own community. And so I think for those types of donors at any level, it's it's a really compelling place to give your money. I would highly encourage people to find out more about HFLA if they don't know about you already. Well, and I would, I would just also mention that a donation to us is going to be used for generations. Our loans keep going and we have a 97% repayment rate. So your money is going to keep being recycled in the community. That's really incredible to think about. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. We so appreciate you sharing your story. If you're interested in learning more about HFLA of Northeast Ohio, please visit interestfree.org. Thanks again, Nicole. So this episode, My Bigger Boat, goes to everybody who's participating in this new movement called the Fire Savers Movement. Fire stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. Hey, who doesn't love that? (laughs) Um, And I love the idea that in the face of this trend that we hear a lot about with millennials not saving as much for retirement, this is the flip to that. These are the people that realize in their 20s, in their 30s, that there is a path to financial freedom and that they really do have control 
control over their future and they're doing the right things to get themselves debt free, to get themselves um, to a place where they can enjoy life to the fullest earlier. Hopefully while they, you know, have fewer health issues and can really like take advantage of all life has to offer. So I love this idea. Um, I think there's a lot of things that we're starting to learn about these people, what they're doing, how they're accumulating wealth and what it really means to have enough money to be able to financially free yourself from, you know, the confines of not just debt, but also a traditional work life. So cheers to you, you fire savers. This episode, My Bigger Boat, goes to Brain Arts Productions, a Chicago-based company whose mission is to build financial literacy skills through creative arts. So they work with museums, private public schools to educate kids and young people on financial literacy, which I think is a, a big important factor in preparing people for this recession and future recessions. This episode, my bigger book, goes out to the Shmoo. An economics widget is any good that is produced with labor from a finite resource. However, a Shmoo is a good that reproduces itself and is captured and reproduced as an economic activity. So it's the perfect example when talking about economics. I learned this in Economics 101. So this, the thing about the Shmoo, though, is it wasn't originally created by economists, but instead by Al Cap, a cartoonist in the 1940s. So it's this cartoon just goes through the day in the life of the shmoo and cap describes the shmoo as a representation of the limitless bounty of the earth and all of its richness in essence mother nature herself so the shmoo was later adopted by economists as a way to explain the economy today my bigger boat goes out to the delicious business located on west 29th larder which is a recipient of an hfla loan it's truly a testament to hard work a dream coming true with the assistance of that incredible organization highly recommend it and you cannot leave without trying the brownies i believe everybody here would support that absolutely This episode is in support of HFLA of Northeast Ohio. HFLA of Northeast Ohio is a non-sectarian 501c3 nonprofit organization that loans money interest-free to people who do not have easy access to other capital. The organization was founded in 1904 with $501 donated by Charles Ettinger, Morris Black, and their friends to help European refugees settle and begin productive lives in this country. Learn more at interestfree.org. Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow on the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, we are at Shark and Minnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marcia Ciccone. Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey. 